Hey everyone, this is Pastor Justin from Grace Half Moon, and I'm really excited to share with you today the giving update for the 2020 vision. Because of your generosity, today we have reached $1,042,913. Yes, come on, come on, give yourselves a hand. Lots of yoo-hoos for everybody. But we are so excited at what God is doing, and we are so thankful for your faithfulness and your generosity. As you can see behind me, this is what uh, your giving is going to build in the coming year. And we are so excited, as you can tell here at Grace Half Moon, the families that we're going to reach and all the kids that we're going to reach. So again, thank you so much for your generosity and give yourselves a hand. And now, could you raise up a lot of yoo-hoos for Pastor Rex as he comes and shares the word? <laughs> wow, I didn't know that was coming. That is amazing. Good job. Yoo-hoo. Yoo-hoo. Woo. It's great to see you this 4th of July weekend. We're so glad you're here. And we do hope that it's an awesome time for you, your family, or any of that you're celebrating with. You know, our United States coins have a unique inscription on them. If you're like me, you probably haven't thought about that for a while. I don't, I certainly don't think about it much. But recently, I remembered what I thought was on our coins and I went to look. And so I picked a penny and a nickel and a dime and a quarter and I looked at them and then I picked some dollar bills, a five, a ten, and looked at those and sure enough, the inscription was still there. As you know, on our coinage is that little inscription, in God we trust. It's on all of our coins. But do you know, do you know how that got there? Do you know the story behind that? After the Civil War, there were a lot of devout Christians in America that kind of appealed to the government that we need to honor God on our currency. And so Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, was receiving all these letters and so on and people talking to him about it. And one letter was from Minister R.W. Watkinson of Pennsylvania who wrote the following, Dear Sir, you are about to submit your annual report to the Congress regarding the affairs of the national finances. One fact touching our currency that has been seriously overlooked is the recognition of the Almighty God in some form on our coins. What if our republic was shattered beyond reconstruction, he asked. Would not the people of succeeding centuries rightly reason from our past that we were a heathen nation because our currency does not acknowledge God? To recognize God on our coinage would place us openly under the divine protection which we have personally claimed. And as a result, Secretary Chase directed the director of the Mint at Philadelphia to prepare a motto on our coins. And Salmon P. Chase wrote this, No nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. In other words, 
they sensed in that day that generally the people of America really did trust in God, and so they said, let's reflect that on our coinage. And so Congress passed the Coinage Act of February the 12th, 1873, and it said the secretary may, quote, cause the motto, in God we trust, to be inscribed on all coins. And it still appears there today, and it also appears on all of our paper currency as well. Well, as we look forward to this Tuesday, July the 4th, our Independence Day as a nation, I want to kind of, this weekend, ask a question that I'd love for you to ponder. In whom do we trust today? As a people, as a nation, as individuals. And we're going to look today at a great chapter of Scripture. It's Psalm 33. I invite you to find it if you have a Bible with you and just keep it open there. We'll look at a number of the verses in that great chapter Or if you view Scripture on your portable device, that's awesome. You can also follow along on the screens. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. Now, originally, David, the one we call King David, wrote this about the nation Israel. That was originally of whom he was speaking. And Israel was unique. It was originally a theocracy. In fact, before the people demanded an earthly king to represent them, God's people, Israel, the Hebrew people, were just a theocracy. God was their leader. And there were certain judges and and other rulers that would rise up, but they were all just anointed by God. There were no elections or anything like that. And so God, the living God, was their God. But these words that we read in Psalm 33 today, and this is so important that we understand this, not only apply to America, but they apply to any geopolitical entity on this planet. In fact, the principles we find here apply to any organization, wherever they are. We want to be that kind of a people, the kind of a nation that indeed God will bless. But he goes on. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind from his dwelling place. He watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now the question is, is that us? Does that represent where our hope lies? As God's people, I think we need to not only ask that question, but if there's anything we can do to help become that kind of a people, we need to lead the way. So let's talk about that for a few minutes today. I want you to see here in this psalm two contrasting views of trust. And if you're a person who likes to jot notes, this might be a great time to jump in. First, I want you to see what I'll call misplaced trust. Because as human beings, we tend to put our trust in things that aren't adequate, things that don't really save us. Let me mention a few that this psalm highlights. 
verse 16, says, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. So one of the places that we mistakenly put our trust is in military might. Remember the phrase there, no king is saved by the size of his army. Now hear me clearly, that does not mean that we should not have a military. I greatly respect and admire the great women and men of this church who have not only served faithfully in the armed forces in the past, but we have many who are still active today. The people of Israel always had an active army, and usually it was a very strong one. This is not saying we shouldn't have a military. This is saying that we need to understand that that can't save us from disaster even if we have the strongest armed forces on the planet. We learned a painful lesson back in 2001, September 11. We learned that some airplanes in the hand of some terrorists could change our lives forever. Every time you catch a flight today, commercially, you're reminded of that. We also see terrorist activities continuing throughout the UK and in many other parts of the world and seems to be most active across parts of Europe these days. Personally, my own conviction, you don't have to share this conviction, but I believe in having a strong military. I think generally that's a wise way to go in a world like this, not only to protect our freedom, but to help protect those in need. But here's the point we need to get from this. Regardless of how strong our military is, we can't put our ultimate hope in that. And all of the greatest leader, military leaders throughout American history have understood this fact very, very well. We need to understand it too. Another place people mistakenly put their trust is in strong leadership. We hear a lot in our world today about leadership. There seems to be sort of a, a frenzy of talk about leadership. We have the great global leadership summit coming up where there's some tremendous talks about how to be more competent as a leader. On our own staff and right here at Grace, we put a huge emphasis on leadership and becoming all we can be as leaders. I'm amazed at the number of books on leadership that you can find on Amazon.com or wherever you tend to go to buy reading material. It's incredible. And many people mistakenly think, if I can just find a strong enough leader, a woman or man out there who has the charisma, who has the chutzpah, who has the leadership courage, that's going to be our answer. They will save us. But did you notice that phrase here, no warrior escapes by his great strength. That's true of a city, a country, an organization, a company. We have a lot of charismatic leaders today on both sides of the political aisle. They are warriors with great strengths, and they can do some good. They really can. Politicians and civil servants can do a ton of good in our world, but we must realize that the government can't save. 
I see some people who get so excited, they seem to have all their hope in the government. They really do. When I listen to them talk, they seem to have all their hope fixed there. I just want to stop them in mid-sentence and go, do you understand the government can't save you? No matter who it is. Do you understand that Uncle Sam can't save your soul? Even though he is from Troy, okay? I'm a resident of Troy. I almost want to believe it. But Uncle Sam cannot save your soul. In fact, it's going to become increasingly challenging just to have reasonable homeland security. The psalmist writes in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Christians ought to be people who live by our beliefs. Our behavior should flow out of our beliefs. And we should say, in God we trust and really mean it. And our actions should flow out of that. There's a sign in an Atlanta police station that reads, in God we trust, others we polygraph. (laughs) Yeah, and I like that sign. So let me ask you, what is the source of your trust today? Is it military might? Is it strong, charismatic leaders, great warriors who are going to do it for you? Don't kid yourself. None of these can save us. None of these can provide the security we need. Well, some people say, well, I would agree with that, but there are many people today who trust in our own security. What I mean by that, see in your outline, what I mean by our own security is they say, look, I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to build around me so much protection, so much security that I won't have to fret or worry. Verse 17 of our text read, a horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Now, when this was written in biblical times, a horse was an amazing military weapon. Boy, if you had a cavalry, if you had horses with soldiers to ride, oh, you could be so swift in battle and so many of the armies in that they didn't really have a good supply of of horses. And so it was an awesome weapon. But it also, if you were fortunate enough to own a horse personally, it provided tremendous personal security in ancient times. Think about it. Man, you could get on that horse. You could go so fast, way faster than your feet could carry you. You could go anywhere, any place, just about any time. And Americans today, most of us don't own, own horses, but we own cars And we think, well, if I've got a beautiful car in the garage, if I've got a huge house, if I've got an incredible 401k, baby, if I've got an exquisite financial portfolio, (laughs) I'm secure. And then there are others, like where I live in Tennessee, who say, look, I'm going to build a little fortress of my own out in the country. Yeah, I'm going to get a security system. I'm going to stockpile weapons. I'm going to fill my basement with ammunition. I'm going to have an alarm system. I'm going to learn self-defense, and 
I'll be secure. It's tempting, isn't it? To put your security in your own independence and your own ingenuity. And there's nothing wrong with so many of these things. The problem is they just don't provide salvation. All of them are a vain hope for deliverance, as the text says. In other words, our vanity, our pride, makes us think we're saved when we're not really saved. And so here's the bottom line. As we think about misplaced trust, and so many Americans are living right there, trusting in lots of things that won't ultimately save or deliver, if your trust is in any of these things today, Ultimately, it is a misplaced trust. How you doing? You happy today? Aren't you glad you came to church? Aren't you feeling nice and warm and fuzzy so far? Oh, yeah. I can feel it. I can sense it in you. Well, hopefully it'll get a little bit better, but it might even get a little worse before it gets better, okay? Now let's talk a little bit about proper trust. Proper trust. If those things won't save us, what will? Where should our trust lie if we're genuine people of faith? Well, this chapter has some things to say about that. Proper trust. Look at verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help. By the way, if you're accustomed to circling things in your Bible or underlying, I circled those four words, he is our help. I circled that in my Bible because that's really the answer to where our trust ought to lie. And our shield. In him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to really trust in him, to let him be our help? Well, first of all, that's going to mean that we trust in God's word. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. But I'm going to make this statement. If we are to become a people as a nation, truly, that is trusting in God, I believe that has to start with having a biblical worldview. One of the reasons I get a little concerned about our country and direction we're going is because there are so many people who just have literally, I'm not exaggerating, no clue what Scripture teaches. Not a clue. Not a clue. Biblical illiteracy is off the chart. So many people think they have a biblical worldview, but their worldview is nowhere close, to be quite honest. And yet there's still a hunger for truth. You may recall years ago, after Hurricane Katrina, Fox National News was doing a story on what was happening at the Superdome down in New Orleans and all the people that were going there for help and so on. And do you know what the number one most requested item was that people were asking for? It wasn't bottled water. It wasn't energy bars or meals. It wasn't clothes or, or sneakers or flashlights or anything like that. The number one requested item in the aftermath of that disaster was a Bible. People said, I want a Bible. Now, we know that that's to be expected when people are hurting. 
But we need to be a people who turn to God's truth and God's word, not just when our life is spinning out of control, not just when the bottom's falling out, but even when we're prospering and flourishing. That's the biggest test of in whom we're trusting. Where do you turn when life is soaring and you're just cruising? That is an indication of where your trust lies. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. And only God's truth can fill that. God's word needs to be our blueprint as a nation and as a family and as individuals. Now, folks, I'm going to make a confession to you today. I hate to admit this. It's really vulnerable, but have mercy on me. I am the world's worst handyman. Can I just be honest about that? I don't don't know how to use tools. I'm the world's worst handyman. Pray for my wife, would you please? Just pray for Debbie, all right, because she, she is far better at being a handy person around the house than I am. I, I'm just bad at it. And, and the, what's even worse, I don't even have an interest in it, you know? I don't even have an, a, a desire to learn. But some, some months ago, as our daughter Allie and our son-in-law Sean were moving into a new apartment, we knew they were about to move in. They had been in St. Louis for a while as Sean was doing some training. And they, they had two pieces of furniture that they needed put together. And so Debbie said, look, let's just put together these two pieces of furniture for them so it'll be a big surprise and they'll be so happy that they don't have to do that But when they get here. And I was already sweating, all right, because I knew that would involve tools, screwdrivers and wire pliers and maybe a hammer and things like that. And so I was sweating it. So carried the boxes. And these were pieces of furniture that come in a box And, you know, it's got a manual of how to put it together. You know what I'm saying? And it's got all these little screws and plastic bags and little bolts and all these kind of attachment things. And it tells you how to put it together. Now, let me ask you a question. When you've got a job like that to do, and boy, were there a lot of pieces to these things. One was a cabinet and it had these hinges on it that were really delicate to do. And another one was like a display case, you know, like had shelves on it. When you have something like that to put together, I want to see a show of hands, whether you're the kind of person who likes to read the instructions first and really follow those, or if you're more like me and you just say, I'll figure it out. If you're, if you're like me and you say, I, I just want to figure it out and just kind of put it together without looking at the instructions. Could I see your hand, please? That's all the godly people right there. Look at them. That's all the godly ones with halos on their head. Okay? And so... I really was behind in my sermon that week, so I had some notes and pages for the sermon. And Deb said, look, I know you're under a lot of pressure here. This was on a Friday. She said, I'm going to start off the day, and I'll see how I can do on my own. You sit there and study. And I said, oh, thanks, hon. I'll be glad to do that. Boy, I was happy then. I'm going to sit here and study. And she said, if I need you, I'll call on you. And so occasionally she'd call on me and I'd come over and help hold a board or something or help screw something in there and get it in the right place. But when I finished studying a little bit, I jumped in big time helping her because we were running out of time. This was taking hours to do. And now we were on the second piece of furniture. And I want to tell you, 
Several times I said stupid instructions. I mean, they had like screw 7B needs to go inboard 3Z, but it didn't look like it went. And a couple of times we would put the wrong board in the wrong place, and I was just mumbling and upset, stupid instructions. This doesn't make any sense. Who wrote this stupid thing anyway? Had such a good attitude about it, let me tell you. But I kept thinking, okay, they are going to be excited. I know they will. They're going to be so thankful and everything. And they were, by the way. But you know, when we finished that long day of laboring over those two pieces of furniture and had everything put together and it all was in the right place, I went back then and read the instructions. And those instructions I thought were so stupid and didn't make any sense were perfect. Everything was perfect. It was spot on. Everything was faithful and true. But as I was looking at it occasionally, I, I would have to turn it this way and look at the diagram and say, is that right? Now, here's the deal. As you try to build a life around God's word and God's truth, sometimes you're going to look at it at a certain angle. You know, that's stupid. I don't want to do that. I don't see the point of that. But after you've walked with God a while and really aligned your life and built your life on his principles, you look back and you know, you know what? God was right and true every time. And that's the attitude we need to have toward his word. People go, how can the Bible be relevant today when it's so old? Isn't it outdated? Not on your life. It's more relevant and more needed than it's ever been. So is our trust in the Lord? Is it in his word? Proper trust is also grounded in a trust in God's plans. God's plans are always given with an eternal perspective. Psalm 33, 13. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. Now, here's the deal. Some of you are facing a very uncertain future right now. Perhaps you've just graduated from college. Perhaps you've just gotten a degree or a diploma of some kind, and you're wondering where you're going to be employed or where you should go or what your next step should be. Some of you have recently had a change of relationships. Maybe you're single again, or maybe you're newly married and you've got a, a future ahead of you, but you've got lots of questions that you don't have answers to. My word to you is trust in God's plans. Trust in God's plans. If you want the best future possible, listen, grab a hold of Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You can grab onto that as an individual. But can I tell you something? We need to understand collectively. Especially when we face a future that sometimes looks fearful. That those words that we all love were written originally not to individuals. They were written to a nation. And God says to the nation, I know the plans that I have for you, plural, not individual, plural, as a group. 
This passage is good advice for our country and its citizens. And we need to remember that God has a plan. I believe he really has a plan for us. Henry Blackaby is the author of the great book called Experiencing God. Millions of people have gone through that Bible study and been greatly benefited. And Blackaby, as he speaks about raising children in the Lord, says, you don't want your kids to just know the Bible story of Daniel. You want to raise up a Daniel, a man of integrity who's willing to take a stand. And then he says, parents, I want your daughter to do more than just know Esther's story in the Bible. I want her to become an Esther, willing to be different and stand out from everyone else. But that requires trust in God's plans for your life. Ezra was a great leader in the nation of Israel after they had been taken into exile in Babylon. And as they were getting ready, a contingency of them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and try to build themselves again as a nation built on the principles of God, Ezra didn't ask for any human protection from the king as they were going back, even though there were bandits all along the way and people who would be very eager to hijack and rob. And Ezra 8 reads, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from our enemies on the road because we had told the king, this is the Persian king, a pagan king who didn't understand their religion or their worldviews at all. I had told that king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. They put their trust in God. They could honestly say, in God we trust. Now, when you look at our American culture today, let me ask you, what do you see Bruce Larson tells of being on vacation with his family when they were traveling through California. And he saw a sign that said, Naturalist Camp. And he thought, oh, our family loves nature. We love God's creation. So he said, we turned in and drove down the entrance road of this naturalist camp, all excited about all the beautiful sights we were going to see. And a little ways down the road, they were passed by five people on bicycles each of which was stark naked. And my observant young son said, Dad, did you see that? Yes, son, I did. He said, his son in the back seat said, Dad, they weren't wearing their helmets. <laughs> Let me ask you, when you look at America today, what do you see? Sometimes we see things, but we're oblivious to the obvious. And I believe we live in a world where we're gradually becoming blinded, even as believers, to some of the more significant issues. Our perspective has been skewed by agnostic media, atheistic professors, lukewarm Christians, and yes, wimpy preachers. 
who prefer to preach popular opinion over biblical truth. Our greatest need is to really look deep in our soul and say, can we say with genuineness, in God we trust? Proverbs 3 reads, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I believe we live in a great country, but I believe we're in danger, dire danger of drifting far, far from God. We need to trust in God's word, God's plans. And third, we need to trust in God's love. Look with me at verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. In other words, in God we trust. Verse 22, may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Verse 10, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Usually when you ask people how they feel about America, they go to one of two extremes. I've noticed, Christians do. They either believe that God is just stuck on America. It's his favorite, the apple of his eye. In other words, when God watches the Olympics, Olympics, he's really cheering for the red, white, and blue and wants to see the U.S. win every gold Others, the other extreme, is to think that America is just doomed and in the pit. It's declined so much morally that there's honestly no hope. We ought to just give up and close up shop. You say, Pastor Rex, what do you believe? I believe both both of those extremes are misguided. But hear me clearly, I don't believe that God is even close to finished with America yet. He still wants to do amazing things with our country. But we've got to take seriously the title of this sermon. It's a question. In whom do we trust? And I believe the question still begs to be answered. Is it God or is it something else? And so as we move toward wrapping up today, I want to suggest to you that Christians can take a key role as we move into the future. And as we think about the future of our nation, I believe that trust and faith are an important choice. If we want to radically transform our country I believe it doesn't even begin with the White House. It begins with your house. I told you it's going to get worse before it got better. If you want to really radically transform this country, it doesn't even begin with the White House. That's important. But it begins with your house and mine. We need to ask ourselves, is it really in God that we're trusting? Wayne Cordero is a preacher in Hawaii. Wouldn't that be a good gig to be a pastor in Hawaii? I've always envied him. 
tells of a time a few years ago where he took a trip to China. He writes, I made a teaching trip to China where 20 leaders of the house church movement came together for leadership training. Dressed as humble farmers, they were adorned in simple clothing that was brightened by huge smiles on every face. Each countenance weathered with deep lines I knew contained stories of trial and victory. Before I began, I thought, well, let's get more acquainted with one another. So I asked them to share a little bit about who they were. One man said he had just been released from serving 12 years in prison for high crimes, which meant he believed in an unseen Messiah, Jesus. How many others of you have spent time in prison for your faith, I ask? 18 of the 20 leaders raised their hands, 18 out of 20. If the government authorities discovered this non-registered religious meeting, these home group leaders would immediately face a three-year prison sentence and I would be deported within 24 hours. In fact, they used their time in prison to memorize scriptures, smuggling in one page at a time, one in the group said, you see, the guards can, can take away the paper, but they cannot take away what I've already hidden in my heart. And Pastor Codero says, when the two days were concluded, I had fallen in love with these seasoned warriors. Realizing my own inadequacy to help them in their daunting task of reaching China, I asked, how can I pray for you? What do you want the most? Pray that we become like you, was their immediate request. We do not have freedom of religion. We have only a few registered churches, and the rest cannot attend. We're a persecuted church. Pray that we can soon be like you. <coughs> I cannot do that, I sadly replied. I will not pray for you in that way. Why not, they pushed back about my seemingly unchristian response. You came here after riding 13 hours on a train. In America, if church is more than 30 minutes away, people will not go. It's too far. You've been sitting on a wooden floor without air conditioning for two days to hear the word of the Lord. Where I come from, if you cannot sit on cushioned chairs and be in the comfort of air conditioning, people will find better things to do. You don't have adequate Bibles, so you memorize what you can. In every Christian home, we have an average of three Bibles, but we don't read any of them. No, I will not pray that you become like us, but I will pray that we become like you. My personal conviction, dear brothers and sisters, and I love you so much, and I am a patriot, but I believe that we, the church of the United States of America, have become soft. I believe it's time we got a little fiber in our souls. I think it's time that we got a little courage and begin to really live out what we say we believe. There's lots of changes that we need to seek in our country, in our government, in our systems. Oh, there's so many things that we can improve. Oh, my goodness. But it's not the White House. It's your house and my house. And if we really want to see radical change, my bottom line is this. I need to see it in me. And when I change, then my marriage changes. 
And when my marriage changes, guess what? My family changes. And when my family changes, guess what? My community changes. And when my community changes, guess what? Then I'm well on the way to seeing a miracle in my country. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Can we really say, in God we trust? Father, would you help us today to be a people who get how important our role is in a nation like this with so many privileges and so many comforts. Help us, oh God, to be people who care and people who continue to celebrate the fact that we have this freedom. I pray even this Tuesday as we celebrate it robustly that you would cause us to appreciate all over again the price that's been paid for us to have these freedoms. But may we as Christians never forget where our ultimate allegiance lies. It's not with the red, white, and blue. It's with that rugged old cross on Calvary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.